In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's a great joy to be here today with you all. Thank you for celebrating with me uh, my first Mass as a deacon, and now my first homily right now. <laughs> um, I just want to take a moment of silence, and uh, honestly, just so I can kind of soak this in for a second. <laughs> Man, this is a great view. <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I was thinking about yesterday, uh, yesterday looking over all the heads of the crowds at the ordination mass, if you're able to be there, um, the mass was absolutely packed and it was such an honor and so exciting to see the amount of people that were there at the ordination. And uh, similar this morning, just everybody coming for Sunday mass. So if you didn't know that this is my first mass and you're just coming for uh, Sunday, that's great too. And sorry. <laughs> but uh, I, I was also thinking about the last time that I was probably sitting in one of the deacon chairs um, because I used to come and serve at the mass, the Hispanic mass, um, as a seminarian. I would come and help and serve at the mass uh, until I heard that I started, I think, getting the nickname amongst the Hispanic community as something along the lines of the sleeper. Uh, because apparently, during Father, Father John's homily, I uh, caught some Z's a couple times. <laughs> so uh, that's nothing against that's not, Father. You have full permission to try to catch some Z's during this if you. <laughs> um, but now I just go to go burrito for my Spanish immersion. So afterwards, not actually. Um, but I, as preparing for this homily, I wanted to. I was trying to figure out. How do, I go, how do I give my first homily? What is, what's it even going to be about? And I was talking to one of my buddies in seminary, and he gave his first homily, he was two weeks ago, about his vocation story. And I thought how appropriate that was as going into this new journey and this new moment of my life, giving a recount and an ode to Christ, especially in the Eucharist, as, as I make this next step towards total commitment to him. So this will be a bit of an ode to the Eucharist in my vocation story. Um, but as I was on retreat last week preparing for this, uh, for this ordination, I came across this quote in this book on St. Clair of Assisi talking about her vocation. And I thought it was so profound because it's so hard sometimes to pinpoint the exact moment that God calls a soul. And a lot of times we're called or asked What's your vocation story? And we're asked to speak about it. And it's, it's shockingly hard sometimes, and I don't know always why. Um, but I thought that this did an amazing job actually explaining why it is sometimes difficult to talk about our vocation story. It is always difficult, if not impossible, to determine the moment in which God invites a soul to himself. The moment we usually identify as the call of vocation. It is difficult because the moment in which the Lord makes himself present in a soul, calling her in a very precise and personal way, rather than in the general way that could avail for anyone, remains for the most part a secret confined to the soul itself. It is also difficult because more often than not, the call does not come suddenly 
but gradually, by a continuous, slow working of grace, which permeates the soul until she distinctly recognizes the voice of him who calls her. I just want to read that line again. It's so beautiful. It is also difficult because more often than not, the, the call does not come suddenly, but gradually by a continuous, slow working of grace, which permeates the soul until she distinctly recognizes the voice of him who calls her. But in every case, whether or not, whether or not the soul is conscious of it, the birth of a vocation always necessitates a change of life. The vocation always produces a conversion. <laughs> I was just shocked when I read that. Um, it's just so beautiful. Um, but it's true. It, it's hard to pinpoint one exact moment in which I felt the call of the Lord um, calling me to this vocation. But in, as that said, it, it, um, there are times when it, it becomes very, very clear and so I wanted to point out two times that I very distinctly remember that becoming clear to me, and they're both connected to the Eucharist. The first one was after a summer camp in high school, I came back and uh, I was so inspired. I was so excited to get into my faith for the first time. I was maybe a freshman in high school, maybe a sophomore. And I came back and I remember going down to my mom's bookshelf and pulling off a ton of books. And I was like, I'm going to read these all this week. <laughs> you know? So I pulled them all off. I really got about 10 pages maybe into the first one. And then I kind of got focused on something else. But in those 10 pages, I was shocked. And it was, it was such a beautiful 10 pages. And I want to read those now to you. So I'm kind of cheating on my first homily and getting some cool words from other people. But, um, but I think they're very profound. And they, both, they have very, very big impact on my vocation. So I want to read this. This is from the book, Seven Secrets of the Eucharist. And I picked this off of my shelf in high school and I read through it. This is on page nine. So I got one more page in. So this is as far as I got. <laughs> the Eucharist is alive. If a stranger who knew nothing about the Eucharist were to watch the way we receive, would he know this? When you and I approach the Eucharist, does it look like we believe we are about to take into our bodies the living person, Jesus Christ, true God and true man? How many times, Lord, have I forgotten that the Eucharist is alive? As I wait in line to receive you each day, am I thinking about how much I want to unite myself with me, unite yourself with me? Am I seeing your hands filled with graces that you want to give me? Or am I distracted with busy or other thoughts preoccupied with myself and my agendas for the day? How many times, Jesus, have I made you sad, mindlessly receiving you into my body, into my heart, with no love and no recognition of your love? How many times have I treated you as a dead object? I'm afraid that in many of our churches, a stranger in our midst witnessing a typical Sunday liturgy would not realize this, but would simply see a bunch of people get up from their seat, wait in line, receive a piece of bread, and then go back to their seats. As a, yeah, as a freshman going to my sophomore year, I think 
I was shocked by that. And I remember very distinctly desiring to receive the Eucharist much more fervently and desiring to receive the Eucharist in a way that I was recognizing the fact that it was the living God, that he was present. About two weeks later, after that, um, was when we were putting in the altar rails here at the parish. And I remember walking in and I remember seeing, I think it was Jacob Wolf, he's a carpenter, and putting in these altar rails. So I think this is my freshman year of high school. Um, putting in the altar rails and I was shocked. Um, and I wasn't really sure why, but I saw the altar rails come in and it gave a dignity to the Eucharist and to the sanctuary, which I had never seen before. And I don't think I'd ever seen altar rails before in a sanctuary. Um, and I, I wasn't really sure why, but for some reason, it really, really gave a clear line to the liturgy of beauty. Well, entering seminary, I pursued this idea, and this is my second kind of point of contact with a vocation, that I very distinctly remember a deep, deep love and a calling to serve the Lord in this way. I researched what the background to the altar rail was, and then I actually learned in one of my history classes um, about the Roman basilicas before the time of Christianity in Rome, when there was still pagan basilicas. And that's one connection that I'll go to in a second. And the first one is actually from the Jewish temples and the rite um, of cleansing that would go in. So I would just want to explain those two real quick. So the first one is the people would come and bring their goat or their sheep to the altar. But before the altar was a table, a rail. And at that rail there was a trough that would catch the blood of the sacrificed lamb. So the man would present, just, this is a, kind of one specific um, time in the sacrifice, would present his lamb, he would kneel down at the rail and present his lamb to be sacrificed. And the blood would be caught in the trough. And that was the meeting point in which a person was made in contact with God. They knelt there, and presented their lamb to be slaughtered. The second one is from the Roman basilicas. And in the Roman basilicas, there would be, kind of similar to our church here, um, and especially if you've ever been to the Roman fora, there's a massive basilica, it's about half of it has fallen down. And if you walk in the middle here, there's an elevated area that's all just ruins but there would be the, the throne where the king or the emperor would be seated. And at that position, the emperor would sit, and while everyone else was doing commerce in the back, the emperor would be seated here, and there was a rail in the same position that we see our rail here. And at that place, the people would come up, kneel, and present their case to the emperor to receive judgment. They would kneel down and beg for mercy from the emperor, from the Caesar. The altar rail is one of, most, one of my favorite parts about our church, and especially in the meeting place between our beautiful congregation and our beautiful sanctuary. No longer does God sit up there 
And we sit there, and there's a disconnect. We meet in the middle at the altar rail. And going back to the Jewish analogy, today when you all receive the Eucharist, coming up to receive, you're presenting your lambs. You're presenting your lambs for sacrifice. That's your lives. And that's where, unfortunately, judgment happens at the altar rail. It's a place of judgment, like in the Roman basilicas. But as we know, Christ has taken the judgment on himself. He's the lamb. He's the lamb that's slaughtered at the altar rail, and he brings life to us at this meeting point. Historically speaking, the throne was taken out and a tabernacle was placed there. Where the tabernacle is now is where the king sits. He sits and he's waiting for you to come for your judgment. However, he's already received the punishment. He's already received our punishment and now you're coming to reap the fruits of it, to receive his life. Today on the Feast of the Holy Trinity, just my luck that I would get <laughs> the Trinity to preach about for my first homily. Um, the Eucharist is the way that we come to know about the Trinity. Christ came in his incarnation he taught us what true love is. And he taught us about the Trinity. And in particular, he taught us that the core of the universe, he is the founder and on which everything is built. And it's love, sacrificial love. That's which everything is built on, on sacrificial love. Trinitarian love as a family. For my vocation story, I guess I would summarize it as that. God stepping, stepping into my life, stepping into, into our life as a family, and tapping me to enter into that reality, to enter into that mission with him. It's an honor, <laughs> it's pretty scary, but it's most of all a joy. A joy to be able to meet people at the rail and be the one who brings judgment and ultimately mercy from the throne to the kneeler. That's the role of the priest. That's the role of the deacon. And I'm happy to say that that's my role now. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.